We are created by God to be stewards, not owners. When you go back to Genesis 1 and when God creates Adam and Eve, they are given these responsibilities in the garden to care and manage to multiply that we, as their children, are the gardeners for all of creation. Now that passage in there is often referred to as the cultural mandate, the the mandate to go out and create dominion for God. So that everything we have, if we are a steward, whether it's large or small, belongs to God. Last week we had Paul introduce us to a very interesting idea that if we are given abundance by God, in other words, if we're given a lot by God, part of that responsibility is then to share it with the poor, with those in need. The only reasons that I have a large portion is so that I can share, so I can bless others. Jesus in the Matthew 6 Passages that we looked at when he speaks about treasures in heaven that we are to store up his reward there. Because when you give to the needy, Jesus calls it a public act of righteousness. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 refers to it as an act of grace. So that when we give to those in need, When you give to those in need within the church, it is an act of righteousness, it is an act of grace. And you see, one of the things that we can look at it, particularly if we look at this passage and see it in connection with chapter 8 and chapter 9, is what you have is an introduction of his teaching to basically give a prayer letter of people needing to help take care of other Christians in another place. That you have people in Corinth take care of people in Jerusalem. Now, when we think about the Jerusalem church, it's a church, if we believe that um, 2 Corinthians is written anywhere from 55 to 60, in other words, 20 to 25 years after Jesus died and went to heaven, in other words, you have almost a whole new generation of Christians. But what had happened was that Jerusalem had become a spiritual tourist destination. In other words, Jews from all over would come to die there. And we don't know how long that would have affected the Christian church that Christian Jews would come there to die. Now Corinth was a very prosperous economic city, port city, all that kind of good stuff. But Jerusalem relied upon others to survive. People that would come to the temple. Now we need to realize and remember that when 2 Corinthians was written, the temple was still intact because it gets destroyed at 70 A.D. 
And so when we look at this passage that we're, we're looking at and considering, and I made the choice not to talk about the first part of it because it was just too much, but to try to focus on this. And so you're going to hear a couple of questions coming out of this that I want to ask you. And the first one is, how do you trust God at his word with all of your life, especially your money? See, in verse 6, when he starts out, he says, the point is this. And you know, if you hear a teacher or you hear your parents, you hear somebody says, the point's this. That means you need to listen, right? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He picks up that theme of sowing seed in verse 10 when he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See, remember when I said God created us to be stewards? Verse 10 points out, he who supplies the seed. That's one of the wonderful things about God's creation is that it does renew itself, is that you can sow a harvest and then you have the seed for the next harvest in it. That is one of the things that in places like Afghanistan and other poor countries do not understand U.S. seed manufacturers who basically want to sell you seed every year. And so when you sow, you get the harvest, but you don't get any seeds that will reproduce next year because they want to sell you a whole new batch. And they're used to the old ways, where you'd eat some and save some. And God wants us to sow bountifully. But notice the spiritual things, as well as the physical things, that he He's going to supply the bread. He's going to multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way. Why are you getting rich? To be generous in every way. And why does he want you to be generous in every way? You look at the end of verse 11, which through us, in other words, you give us the money, we spread it around Jerusalem, will produce thanksgiving to God. Do you see how God can take the sharing of resources and produce a connection between the church so that God receives thanksgiving and praise? And then again, he reinforces this idea that if I have something, if I am enriched, is it a way that I can pass it on and be generous? See, one of the things that we're going to see in this passage with this passing on of what God gives us with being generous is it goes back and it's rooted in that covenant promise in Genesis 12 
I will bless you and you will bless the nations that, you know, you pass it on every generation. That blessing is spiritual as well as physical, as well as economic. That we share. Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you see how he's encouraging us and saying, the reason God is blessing you is so you can share it. Abound in every good work. One of the things that we know, and I've spoken of this before in this series, is that in our day and age, trying to figure out, okay, how do we help those who are in need? Because those who are in need in our neighborhoods who are different than people who are in need in other countries, who have other situations. How do we have the discernment to know how to be generous so that it, it helps the people we want to help? See, if you give people money, but they have no place to go and buy food, it doesn't do them any good. If you give people money and they don't have any water to drink and give to their children... If you give people money, and, and I use this illustration, but I'm going to use it again. When I was in Egypt in the 80s with the Air Force, um, we were given box lunches because we were going to go down into Luxor. And they did not want us eating the local food and getting sick. So they give you this lunch. Part of the lunch is two cooked coals in a can. So, you know, here I am, my kids are still young, and this girl that I judged to be five years old comes up and just big brown eyes. So I gave her a Coca-Cola. She walks ten feet and gets beat up by a bunch of boys who take it away from her. And my guy says, you never give a girl anything. If you want her to have it, you've got to give it to the father who can give it to her. See, I didn't understand how the culture worked, how to do something good to help somebody. I got her hurt in trying to do it. And so when we think about today, how do we help other people? We have to understand how can we really help them? When I think about what's going on in India that we support in terms of teaching people to sew, teaching them education, all the things that they do, what we think of as holistic, because we go back and we remember that he supplies the seed that becomes the bread. We had the illustration about manna, that God gives us manna and we are reminded that everything we have comes from God. And he gives it to us so that we can be generous. That we can, as it says in verse 8, abound in every good work. The second thing is that 
He does something that is not new in 2 Corinthians. He interrupts his story, his lesson, with this phrase, it is written. It's like he wants to say, okay, let me tell you where this idea comes from. And so in verse 9, you have this interruption, it is written. And I want to use this as an opportunity to say when he says that, he is not saying, okay, here's a text that proves my point. Because what he's doing is he, he, he knows, because of the people he's talking to, that most of them, when he makes that quote, they'll say, oh, yeah. You know, it's like what I see around here when somebody, a presenter, stands up and starts. Everybody knows what he's, where we're supposed to go. I don't know yet, but people know the Psalms. I would imagine if a presenter got up and started to sing Psalm 112, people join right in because they know it. So you have this verse in our text in 2 Corinthians 9. So the first thing you have to ask yourself, who's the he? Is it God? Is it David? Moses? See, that's why you go back and you say, what's the context? What's the story? Now, when we go back to Psalm 112, the he is described in verse 1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Wealth and riches are in his house, it says in verse 3, and his righteousness endures forever. See, what we're seeing is the psalmist describing a blessed man. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is, listen to these three words, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. He's not afraid of bad news. We have a friend who wrote a whole song around that, but he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. And so as he gets to ready to the psalmist gets ready to wrap it up, he says, "He has distributed freely." Remember, this is a poem, so you have the first line. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. And his righteousness endures forever. Now, you see how what Jesus said about giving righteous, about the righteous giving to the poor publicly, that that is a reflection of Psalm 112? That even though Jesus doesn't quote it, the idea of the righteous giving to the poor has been there in Scripture. Now, the last question I want to ask, because it's, it's like Paul creates an argument within a statement that I put in a question 
Let me read the question. How does your confession of the gospel of Christ make you a generous, cheerful giver? Look at verse 13. Because this, this is a passage that just weaves so many things together. By their, in other words, the people in Jerusalem, approval of this service, receiving the money, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. See, he reminds us that the only reason we're doing all this is because God has been gracious to us. This is something that I all of a sudden got up on a Saturday morning and says, well, I want to be a generous person. I'm a generous person because God has gotten hold of my life. Because his grace is on me. I mean, I mean, when the end of 14, the surpassing grace of God. But, again, in verse 13, it says, they will glorify God. Do you see how these acts of generosity and kindness and grace and mercy bring worship to God? When we receive that gift that we need to keep going, we should give God the glory. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see how this is all tied up with their saying, I believe in Christ, I believe in the gospel. That there's not a spiritual part and a physical part. No, it's all of our life. It's what I call, it's our checkbook and our prayer book. It's all tied together. And he's saying, you're going to do this because of the gospel, because you're going to submit to the gospel. When I was an Air Force chaplain, and I would talk with, um, we had worship service budgets. In other words, depending upon how many worship services you would have, each one of them would have a control over a ministry budget. And I said, the budget tells the story of what you want to do next year. I remember one time uh, when I was at Ramstein and we had seven Protestant sermons, services. And four of them had line items for drumsticks. 200 $300, $400 worth of drumsticks, depending upon how big their service was. And that told me something about what they're going to do. They have money for fellowship dinners. They have money for children's activities and things like that. And so when we look at giving our money and having God do something with it for his glory so that he receives his glory. But when we think about people coming to Christ... And making that confession, it 
And I think about this in terms of when you disciple people. Do we think of generosity as something that will come out of our profession of faith? That my new life in Jesus Christ will make me a generous person? Now, verses 7 and 8, verse 7 is, at least in America, it's one of these bumper sticker verses. People will take all or part of it. You know, people will say, God loves a cheerful giver. Like that's supposed to change people. One of the things about preaching about stewardship because of my background and because this isn't the first time I've talked about these things. If we don't pay attention in our hearts to the first part of verse 7, that last part's not going to make any sense. Notice what it says again at the beginning of verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing? He's not saying, oh, you have to give 10%, or you have to give 20%, or you have to do this, you have to do that. I think he does something much harder. Because what he wants you to do is to say, before God... Before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what are you going to decide in your heart? You see, the budget should reflect our hearts. Our giving should reflect our hearts. And and notice how he qualifies that, how he wants to make sure that it is really your heart that he's after. Notice what it says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You see how he he comes around and he says, it's a heart decision. Stewardship is a heart decision. Just like the generosity comes out of the confession of the gospel, out of our hearts. Notice the twins there, not reluctantly. Oh, I guess I better do this. Or this will, you know what reluctantly looks like. Any of you pay bills reluctantly? But, or under compulsion. You know, one of the things that, you know, in YouTube and religious news and stuff, you see people building up financial empires from ministries because they say, you must, you have to, God has revealed this to me. And see, what I want to say is, no, he hasn't because this is what he said. I'm not going to come look at your checkbook and say, this is what you need to be given. That's between you and God. It really is. See, my job is to get you to realize that that's true. But notice what it says again. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. I am not trying to compel you to do anything. I want the Holy Spirit to do that. I want the Word of God to do that.
Notice how he turns it around. He does this again and again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. You see, that's what we want. We want God's grace. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Do you see how he talks about all of your life? Not just the spiritual, but the physical, everything. All sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. Again, it's that idea, that covenant blessing, that I'm going to be wanting to bless others because I have been blessed. I'm going to pass it off. I'm going to want to do the good works. Then verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, if we don't see God's grace in all of our life, it's not going to overflow in thanksgiving. See, if I don't realize that I'm a steward, that I'm picking up manna, that it's all of grace, that then I'm not going to be that cheerful, generous giver that God calls me to be. And I'm not going to overflow with thanksgiving. See, one of the things that we need to look at in our lives, I believe, is if I'm not overflowing in thanksgiving, am I doing it on my own? Am I thinking that all that I have, everything that I've amassed, that I all... That I did that rather than God gave it to me. And then he ends with verse 15 with another thanks. Because you see, when we give, it should be so that we can thank God. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Now I want to close with I guess two pointed applications. You know how we pray for the persecuted church every week? I haven't figured out how to do this, but I think that we need to pray for the abundant church every week. The Christians who are abundant would know how God wants them to share, how God wants them to be generous, cheerful givers. For all the reasons of God's grace that are wrapped up in our lives, how should we share and how should we give? How are we connected? See, one of the things this passage does again and again is it reminds us our church is not alone. The Macedonians, the Corinthians... Jerusalem, they're all the body of Christ. Now, the second thing is about our particular church. I am in the process of starting to write a letter to you because in a month I will have been here a year. And just to reflect. And then to stretch towards the future. And to be able to have those conversations, to get people talking and dreaming 
with each other. You see, I want God to lay a vision on your heart, just like he does with giving, a vision on your heart about the future of this church. What Fred has to watch is, I learned how to write military plans in my first assignment because I was the new guy. And our wing was changing from being a nuclear wing, in other words, drop atomic bombs, to a deployable wing, which means drop conventional bombs. So all of a sudden we had to figure out how to go camp out someplace. And so my boss said, well, Fred, you're going to be the guy that's going to write the plans for the chaplains. And so that meant that Fred, this young chaplain, literally had to go around and coordinate my plans with everybody else. I went to school to learn how to do this, and it was a wonderful experience. Because you know where the chaplains sat on the first plane out of town because I was able to write the plan and tell people why it's important to have a chaplain when people get off the plane. But see, that's not my job here. My job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to tell you what's possible and maybe how we might get there. But see, I want this passage here You know, we don't want to look at the future reluctantly or under compulsion. You see, I want God's grace to be at work in all of our hearts. Now, I will tell you that one of the things that God has done is that in my prayers for you and in my growing love for you as a pastor, I have this excitement about the opportunity that you have invited me to minister with you at this stage of my life, at this stage of your church's life, so that we might see what God is going to do together. But I want you to understand that when I look at this verse and I see the balance between Fred Because it's not like I'm going to write a plan and say, this is what you need to do. Because you need to buy into it. You need to say, this is where we are going to go. This is where we believe God wants us to go. That God wants us to be generous people with our time, with our efforts, with all that he has. And we're going to decide in our hearts. Because that's what biblical stewardship is about. It's deciding in your heart what God has given you to give away. So that you can be part of that covenant blessing of being blessed and then passing on the blessing. So whether it's for young people or old people, for neighbors that are new, see, one of the things I know because of where I live is that there is a housing shortage. And they're going to put some, what is it, 40 new houses in our neighborhood. 
Six of them will be council houses. The rest of them will be... Because they are creating jobs on Sky that they don't have room or places for. And, you know, when you drive along that main road by us, before you get down to, to, to Kyle... How much flat space, you know, you got the sea on one side, how much flat space is on, you know, the right side of the road? A lot of that is this rock, right, where you can't build homes. Or they're going to be driving up and going to Balmacar Square and going out from there, and you, know, you think about other places that you can go to, or where Ian lives, maybe next to him, they'll put a road, they'll keep going up or they're going out. I mean, you know, there's all these possibilities, but there are going to be new people that are going to need to be in church. How do we reach newcomers? How do you make newcomers welcome? It, it's hard for me as a pastor to think that I've been here 11 months. It has gone by fast. And I'm still learning things, getting used to things. But I want you, if you, you know, it's like, okay, if, when, when Fred's gone and Celeste's gone, what do I want them to remember? That I want you to recognize that God's grace is at work in you so that you are, in this case, generous and cheerful. You are people of joy who give thanksgiving. You are not a reluctant Christian. You're not being pushed compulsory. You're doing it because you've experienced God's grace. That's how you become a cheerful giver, is through God's grace. Let us pray. Dear Father, we do thank you that you loved us. I mean, last week you said Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. Oh, Father, help us to see the grace every day. No matter what our age or stage in life, we pray, Father, that, that your grace would just grab a hold of our hearts. And that we would want to do what we need to do because you have provided for us everything that we have in every way. And we want to do it. We want to give sacrificially because you have been sacrificial to us. Oh, Father, we give you thanks. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.